focus just on this question, though, somewhat extra to what you heard last week, but I think complements what we heard this morning from the book of Job. Question answer 44 asks, speaking of the Apostles' Creed, why is it added that he descended into hell? And the answer it gives is that in my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. In our uh, liturgical forms of the URC, we um, have uh, a slightly different language there. It says that it, it assures me in attacks of deepest dread and temptation. Attacks of deepest dread and temptation. That's um, something that the author of Psalm 88 was well acquainted with. Attacks of deepest dread and temptation, which he says he's known from his youth up. Um, Psalm 88 has been called one of the darkest, um, actually the darkest prayer in all the Psalter. One wail of sorrow from beginning to end. Very much unlike what is often sung in public worship. A number of years ago, one pastor in the OPC, Carl Truman, wrote a piece called What Do Miserable Christians Sing? Commenting on how in much of the the broader church in the 21st century, these sorts of psalms are absolutely unheard of. Even a psalm like Psalm 13, which we'll sing later, or Psalm 22, those uh, types of psalms that express the, the sort of anguish that we sometimes feel. Largely left out of corporate worship. What do miserable Christians sing? We have in our own uh, hymnals, for instance, in the URC, we have uh, a hymn by William Cooper, uh, that speaks of the providence of God in, in the midst of suffering. And that's, uh, that's good. We, we need those. But psalms like this also uh, speak of those periods of time which our, our uh, eyes are so clouded by the suffering that's all around us that we can't quite comprehend the Lord's suffering in it. That uh, hymnal, Cooper says, Judge not the Lord." By feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That's true. We we tend to want to dwell on the comfort of God's providence in the midst of our suffering. But Cooper himself, who wrote that hymn, was not always able to detect God's smile. If any of you here know anything about William Cooper's story, his life was acquainted with grief. It has been described by one biographer as one long accumulation of pain. He was born in 1731, and at six years old, his mother died. And so he was sent away by his father to a boarding school where he was cruelly bullied for many years. Later on in life, after a two-year engagement to the love of his life, her father forbade them from marrying. 
Later on, he suffered from deep depression. At age 31, he experienced a mental breakdown, which led him to try to take his life on three separate occasions. So he was committed to an asylum, and it was there in that asylum that he became a Christian. Nevertheless, uh, throughout the rest of his life, Cooper continued to suffer from deep depression. And uh, shortly before his death from dropsy, some 30 years later, one of the last things he said was, I feel unutterable despair. Although he blessed the church with many Christian hymns, like there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel veins, and and, um, God moves in a mysterious way, this man battled with despair. And so even though a psalm like Psalm 88 might feel a a bit uncomfortable, perhaps you're here this afternoon and you would have uh, preferred not to sing it, or maybe to sing a few less stanzas, it was like a, a, bit of a, a bit of a drudge going, going through all of those uh, deep, dark lines in that psalm. Even though that may be the case, a, a psalm like this is exactly what some saints need to hear. As it speaks honestly to the suffering and anguish that they experience and, and gives voice to their feelings of despair. In fact, one pastor, Mark Manel, who himself has struggled with a severe depression, even suicidal thoughts, says of this psalm that in his darkest moments, this psalm, Psalm 88, is the reason why he feels that he is still able to do business with God. He calls it unexpectedly one of the most liberating chapters in the Bible. And so this afternoon, we'll look at this unexpectedly liberating chapter, Psalm 88, in connection Question answer 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll consider these together in three parts. I'm looking first at the cry of Psalm 88, then the answer to Psalm 88, and finally the comfort of Psalm 88, the cry, the answer, and the comfort. It begins with a confession from the psalmist that uh, day and night he cries out before God. And and as you read on, um, you get the impression that he and the Ezraite has heard no answer. Because by the end of the psalm, he is in exactly the same place he began. In fact, he feels even worse after praying than he did before. There is no resolution The psalm begins in confusion, it ends in darkness. In fact, he he even um, seems to to almost lose all mental and spiritual motivation as as the psalm goes on. For the most hope-filled statement in this entire psalm is the first line, O Lord God of my salvation. But by the time you get to the end, verses 13 to 18, he is no longer referring to the Lord as the God of my salvation, but he feels cast away. As if the God of his salvation has hidden his face from him. And notice how the the terrors of which he speaks in verse 15, he says, come from God's hands. I suffer your terrors, your dreadful assaults, Verse 17, he says that they have so accumulated that he is drowning in them. They have engulfed him altogether. And like we'll see, or like you see throughout the book of Job, or like you sometimes see in the Psalms, he complains that there is no one to share in his suffering. 
Because verse 18, a beloved and friend have shunned him. And so the final word of the psalm is darkness. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's, it's difficult to even decipher what exactly he, he says in verse 18. It reads something like, Beloved and friend, shun me. Companions, darkness. As if he is so fatigued that he cannot even uh, finish his sentence. And so appropriately, the psalm ends in darkness. Darkness as his only companion. Darkness as his closest friend. And so there is this deep, dark decline throughout this whole psalm. You notice that as you look at the very beginning. Um, verse 3a, his soul is full of troubles. The next line says he's near to Sheol. By verse 4, he's no longer just near the grave, but he counts himself among the dead, those who go down to the pit. He's without strength. And finally, verse 5, cut off from God's hand and remembered no more. We see this dark decline throughout the psalm, leading all the way to verse 18. Darkness. In fact, we see that darkness several times. It comes up in verse 6, where he speaks of of the regions, dark and deep. We see it in verse uh, 12. Are your wonders known in in the darkness? Again, in verse 18, as he says that his companions have become darkness, or darkness, his closest friend. There is this repetition throughout. Um, Eight times he speaks of being near to death. When Pastor writes, from a statistical point of view, this seems a bit overdone. And yet, from a psychological point of view, it is true to life. Distraught people tend to repeat themselves. A lot. This kind of poetic realism may help the depressed child of God identify more readily with the outpouring of sorrow in this psalm. And not only is there repetition, but notice also how this psalm lacks order. This is not um, as as structurally tidy and coherent as most of the psalms are. Perhaps reflecting the disorientation that the psalmist feels. Perhaps reflecting that that, um, emotions are not always neat and tidy. That you can't always put them into words. Into paragraphs and statements that, that make sense. Even when you can put put your words or your thoughts into words, you you cannot uh, make them coherent and and you cannot avoid repetition. And yet God puts this disorganized, disoriented, repetitive psalm that does not even end with a coherent sentence into the Psalter. Allowing his disoriented, suffering saints to identify with the outpouring of sorrow in this psalm. And to identify with Heman the Ezraite as he, as he voices to God in verses 3 to 7 the reason for his sorrows. That his soul is full of troubles. He feels near to the grave. He feels like a man with no strength. He has been laid in the lowest pits into the darkness. He feels quite lonely, verse 8. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut up so that I cannot escape. Feels like he's trapped in a cave. 
And so his eyes waste away in the darkness of his lonely existence. Notice again that that repetition of this idea of being alone. We see it in verse 8. We see it in verse 18. He's alone. No one understands. Perhaps no one cares. Verse 13, it doesn't even feel like God does. The psalmist in verses 11 and 12 has lost all sense of God's steadfast love. He has lost all sense of God's faithfulness. He has lost all sense of God's righteousness. He, he feels forgotten. And at this point in the psalm, we might expect that there's going to be some sort of, of great turnaround, some sort of, of coming to his senses. That there's going to be this great reversal of thought, as there so often is in the Psalms of Lament, where, where he, he, after all of this, says, but I will trust in you, God. That's not what we find in verses 15 and following, as Heman looks to the past and, and to the future and around in the present, and nowhere does he find hope. That ray of sunshine, that smile that often comes at the end of these Psalms of Lament is nowhere to be found. But as he looks back and reflects on his life, he says, I have been afflicted and close to death from my youth up. His whole life has been one long accumulation of pain, and and so he tries looking ahead. But all he sees is death, despair. And so then he looks around himself in the present, and yet all he sees is those overwhelming floods of despair that have engulfed him altogether, and the psalm ends darkness. That's the cry of Psalm 88. One without companions, without hope, without relief. It contains no resolution, it has no happy ending, it just ends. And yet, even though there is no resolution within this psalm itself to the attacks of deepest dread and temptation that some children of God, like um, uh, Heman the Ezraite, feel, the question 44 of our catechism does suggest that there is a resolution. It does suggest that there is a resolution, there is an answer that God provides to these attacks of deepest dread and temptation that his children sometimes feel. And I would suggest to you that that resolution is much closer than we might realize. The Catechism tells us that the answer to our deepest attacks of dread and temptation is Christ. Wouldn't you know it? The very next line in the Psalter leads us to Psalm 89. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Psalm 89 is an undeniably messianic psalm about God's covenant with David, reflecting on on the promises that God makes in 2 Samuel 7 concerning his coming son, who will have an eternal kingdom. David's seed will be established on his throne forever. That's what Psalm 89 is about. And so as we read Psalm 88 within the context of the rest of the Psalter and within the context of the rest of salvation history, we do find a resolution and his name is Jesus, who suffered unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier. 
who was rightly called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, whose terror of soul that he felt in Gethsemane, that he felt on Good Friday, means that even though Heman the Ezraite felt as if God knew nothing of his darkness, he did. Heman said, my soul is full of troubles. So Christ, the God-man, would say in the Garden of Gethsemane, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Heman felt as if he was an object of God's wrath. Christ, too, would feel the full weight of God's wrath on the cross. Even that drowning imagery that we see in this psalm will be fulfilled in Christ as he is baptized in the waters of God's judgment. Heman felt as if all of his friends and all of his loved ones had abandoned him. As we heard this morning, Christ knew what that felt like. As his own family thought that he was out of his mind, as his own disciples fell asleep multiple times on that that horrible night in Gethsemane, they scattered when he was arrested. Fulfilling that, that line from Zechariah that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. One of them, Peter, denies him three times. Jesus knew what it was like for loved ones and friends to abandon him. Heman felt as if God had abandoned him and said, Why do you hide your face from me? Likewise, Christ would say on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He entered into accursedness for us. So that the light of God's countenance might shine upon us. He entered into darkness so that we might know God's light and his smile. And not only did Christ utter that cry of God forsakenness from Psalm 22, but as he felt the full weight of the curse, he actually was forsaken by God. Heman the Ezraite in Psalm 88 or or David in Psalm 22, they felt as if they were forsaken by God. Christ really was. Heman spoke of darkness three times in this psalm. Likewise, Christ knew something of that darkness as in Matthew 27 and Mark 15. It it tells us that, that not only did he feel this darkness of soul that Heman felt, but literally as he hung on the cross, the earth was covered in darkness for three hours. All of the dark features of this psalm point like an arrow to Jesus. The one who went down into the pit, the one who was laid in the grave, the one who was not just among the dead, but was dead, the one who descended into hell. Which is perhaps why the the Church of England uses this psalm on Good Friday, or the Episcopal Church um, uses it on Holy Saturday. Right of someone taking a trip to Israel, and, and when they got to the place where archaeologists believe Jesus spent his last night before the crucifixion, the, the tour guide paused and read Psalm 88. Perfectly appropriate to read because these words perfectly describe the experience of Jesus. Uh, Dr. Van Vliet, in, in his entry on, on Psalm 88, in the, the Christ Psalms, Our Psalms volume, says concerning every anguish-laden verse in Psalm 88, our Lord Jesus can rightly say, this was fulfilled in me and by me. This psalm, like every psalm, speaks prophetically of Christ. 
But more than just speaking to us of Christ, it is Christ speaking in this psalm. Hebrews 2 says that Christ is the singer of the psalms. Hebrews 10 makes the same point. It's a quotation of of Psalm 40. And Colossians chapter 3 refers to the psalms as the word of Christ. Such that this is not only human's prayer to God, but it is a spirit-inspired prayer, and it is the spirit of Christ who speaks it. Christ prayed this prayer through Heman, speaking prophetically of the sufferings and agonies that he would one day experience. And then he gave this psalm as a gift to the church, giving voice to our agony and our anguish and assuring us in the midst of it that we do not pray on our own. But Christ himself accompanies us in our prayer. Reminding us that you are not alone in the darkness. And you see how Psalm 88 is answered in Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said there is no theoretical answer to a psalm like this. The only real answer is Jesus. As psalms like this lead us to cry out that we cannot bear this agony. And as Christ, the singer of the psalms, sings it with us, he says, I will bear it for you. That's the goal of the psalms of lament, to help us to see that we cannot bear this agony and to look to the one who bore it for us. They proclaim Christ to be our only help in the midst of our anguish. They give us the words to speak and they point us to Christ who speaks them to They assure us during deepest attacks of dread and temptation that Christ our Lord, Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on Maundy Thursday and Good Friday has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. As he experienced hell for us, he delivers us from it. Both literally and also figuratively. He literally is is baptized in the waters of God's judgment, feeling his wrath for us so that we might never have to experience the judgment of God, his cup of wrath poured out upon us, the condemnation and hell that we deserve. He literally takes that force, and then he figuratively enters into our suffering, bearing the, the hellish anguish and torment that we sometimes feel in this life. The Catechism wants us to see the immense comfort that this brings. Next to Lord's Day 1, or perhaps even rivaling Lord's Day 1, this is perhaps the most pastoral, most reassuring, most comforting in the midst of suffering question and answer in the whole Catechism. So let us consider then the comfort of Psalm 88, the comfort of Christ's suffering as we read of it in question and answer 44. This psalm, as it gives voice to our cries of anguish and points us to the cries of our suffering Savior on the cross. Question answer 44 is it does the same. It gives comfort not only to individual believers, but gives comfort to the whole body of Christ. I'm like so many of the psalms. This psalm does not tell us exactly what the psalmist was going through. In fact, we know very, very little about him and the Ezraite. And because of that, throughout church history, this psalm has been applied in in so many different ways. Earlier I mentioned a pastor named Mark Manel, who himself has struggled with depression. 
The title of the book that he's uh, written on that is the same as the title of this sermon because he takes Psalm 88 as his starting point. It speaks to him in the midst of anguish that he cannot even express. Now the writer's written a book on how Psalm 88 speaks to Christians with various forms of mental illness. Still another about how this psalm resonates with the experience of senile dementia and reflecting the the slow physical deterioration, the, the loosened relationships and relentless progression towards death. Another says this psalm resonates with the experience of abused women for whom sometimes the story does not end happily ever after. Throughout the history of the church, this psalm has been used in pastoral care to those near death. As that um, opening superscription that's that's somewhat difficult to pronounce, mehaloth leanoth, may have something to do with, with sickness or afflictive illness. And so this may be a prayer that reflects the physical and spiritual anguish of a critically ill child of God, a believer, on their deathbed. This psalm speaks to us in all the attacks of deepest dread and temptation we may endure. Every pain is accounted for. And sometimes we might be tempted to think of those pains as less than Christian, as we spoke about a bit this morning. But that is not the case. This psalm teaches us, as Calvin said, that sometimes sorrows so overcloud the minds of genuine servants of God as to exclude from their minds for a time all remembrance of his providence. That's what will happen to Job in Job 3. Sometimes sorrow so overclouds the minds of genuine servants of God as to exclude from their minds for a time all remembrance of his providence. And Calvin goes on to say that the minds of the godly are often preoccupied with sorrow and they do not immediately pause to consider the secret providence of God. They do not immediately pause to consider the secret providence of God. I'm thinking back to William Cooper. What that means is that genuine believers, even genuine reformed believers who understand that behind a frowning providence there, there hides a smiling face, even genuine reformed believers who, who have memorized Lord's Day 10 may still end their lives saying, I feel unutterable despair. To borrow the the title of David Murray's book, this psalm teaches us that Christians get depressed too. That these sorts of somber emotions are not outside the bounds of genuine Christian experience. And as it affirms that for us, this psalm then furnishes us with a form of prayer to bring these emotions before God in the midst of our despair and our emotional debilitation. They give us a vocabulary for grief. Whatever that grief may consist of, illness, loneliness, threat, imprisonment, whatever dread and temptation there is on earth is known by the psalmist, all of it is accounted for. And so Psalm 88 speaks to the individual believer in every trial of this life. And yet it doesn't only speak to the individual believer, but but it also speaks to the whole church. As this psalm gives us a little tiny glimpse into the sufferings of our brothers and sisters as they're near death. 
into the sufferings of our brothers and sisters as they are bereaved of their children, as they they struggle for reasons unknown to them, and may even struggle in, in such a way that they feel worse after they get done praying than they did before. This psalm gives us a little glimpse into the sufferings of our brothers and sisters. And even beyond that uh, local congregational application of this, it also gives us a little glimpse into the suffering of of those who are imprisoned for the sake of the gospel and and feel as if they've been abandoned by God. Those who are tortured for Christ. Do you see why the church needs Psalm 88? There are suffering saints all over the world with whom we are to stand in solidarity, crying out to God for their sakes. There are fellow pilgrims, even among you, perhaps across the pew from you, who need to know that the feelings they experience are given expression in God's words. So by including from time to time a psalm like Psalm 88 in our liturgy, by singing other psalms of lament, by by, uh, even using them perhaps in pastoral prayer, praying the language of the psalms. We are communicating to those among us who are overwhelmed by the burdens of this life that their feelings are not out of bounds in the church, but are in fact a bridge into contemplating the sufferings of Christ, the one whose unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul that we read of in question answer 44 is given expression in the songbook of the church that we might know, that those who are suffering among us might know that they are not alone in what they feel, but Christ has felt it too. Because he did, all of the sufferings that we endure in this life, we may be assured, are temporary. Singing the songs of our suffering Savior assures us during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ our Lord has delivered us from all such dread and temptation, has delivered us from the hellish anguish and torment we deserve. And so we cannot afford not to sing these songs. The worship of the Christian church is severely impoverished as she neglects the psalms of lament. The worship of the church is severely impoverished as she neglects the psalms of lament. What do miserable Christians sing? They sing psalms like this. They sing psalms like Psalm 13 or Psalm 22 or or Psalm 42, Psalm 69. And they sing them with their Savior who assures us by his suffering that ours one day will cease. It assures us that until it one day does, we have a sympathetic high priest in heaven who is not untouched by the feeling of our infirmities. He assures us that we have a high priest in heaven who not only bottles our tears, as we heard this morning, but but who knows exactly what we feel. As one writer says, there is not a note that can strike in our humanity that does not strike a sympathetic chord in his exalted humanity. So if you're here this, this afternoon and you are struggling, behold your Savior. Behold your Savior in Psalm 88, in question answer 44, who is not unacquainted with your suffering, but has in fact entered into it to one day deliver all of us from it forever. 
Amen. Let's um, respond by singing together Psalm 13.